Hey, this is Pastor Peter from the Springs. We had a little bit of trouble recording our sermon this week, but we did get most of it recorded on our backup device. So we're going to patch you in toward the start of the message here entitled License and Legalism. Now for a little bit of context first, the last few weeks we were in Romans chapter 6, where Paul was dealing with the accusation that his preaching of grace, the saving power of the gospel, was somehow giving a license for people to keep on sinning. Paul dismantled that claim in chapter 6 by showing that grace doesn't give license to sin, but to die to sin and to live in Christ with a whole new heart. Now, this week we cover chapter 7 of Romans, and Paul moves from the lie of license to the lie of legalism, dealing with the accusation that his preaching is somehow making the Old Testament law void or calling the law sin or bad. Now, as we study chapter 7 of Romans, we'll be in verses 7 through 13, and we're going to see Paul uphold the value of the law while protecting the balance of the gospel between the extremes of license and legalism, aiming to preserve the simplicity of Jesus. So with that context, we will jump right in. Sin and death. That's the question of chapter 7. How does the law of God relate to sin and death and to righteousness in life? And I'm going to spend some time preaching through our passage slowly and underlining one basic idea. Sometimes I have the big idea. Today it's the basic idea. And then after I preach through the text, I'm going to leave you with a few challenging takeaways for how in light of the simplicity of the gospel and this basic idea that we see in the gospel, how it is that we tend to complicate the gospel and the simplicity of the gospel in dangerous ways. Here's that basic idea. Lord, help us to focus in. (laughs) There's a ringing coming from someone's watch. All right. The basic idea is this. Oh, thank you, Jesus. The law is good. Sin is bad. Took me a week to come up with this. Said it was basic. The law is good. Sin is bad. Now, generally in the New Testament, whether it's Jesus or Paul, when he refers to, quote, the law, it's not just the commandments of the Old Testament, but specifically the first five books of the Old Testament, known to Jews as the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Referring specifically to the the Jewish history, even the extensive list of precepts, rules, statutes, prohibitions, commands. So when it says the law, keep that in mind. That's the context of this text. Ready? Buckle in. Here we go. Verse 7 starts like this. What then shall we say? That the law, the Torah, it's sin? It's bad? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Now, this is not saying that I wouldn't have known sin like carnal knowledge. I wouldn't have been united with sin or I wouldn't have been sinful without the law. It's saying that I wouldn't recognize sin. I would be relatively ignorant of this otherwise silent, elusive killer called sin 
that's killing anyway, whether I recognize it or not. See, the law exposes sin much like an x-ray will expose a bone fracture in your leg. If a dude's walking around with a bone fracture, he's going to be hobbling along and being constricted and his life's going to be a little bit difficult. Long before he gets an x-ray to see what the problem is. And when he does see what the problem is, the problem is not the x-ray. The x-ray just shows him the problem. So this is what the law does. It brings light to sin. The law is good. We don't have to think things like law, bad, gospel, good. And I say that with a mocking voice because this false dichotomy is what we often do to try to complicate that which is simple. We, in our effort to try to simplify, we complicate. We bring this false dichotomy as if the law had to be bad for the gospel to be good. No, the law is good. The gospel is better. But without the law, which is a component of the goodness of the gospel, we wouldn't see our need for the gospel. And, and people do this false dichotomy. Preachers like us, we do this. We think like for me to maximize the centrality of the beauty of the gospel, I somehow have to minimize other beautiful things like the sacraments or the spiritual gifts. And let me tell you, I, I'm trying to strain myself and just saying that's not good. It's bad because the law isn't bad. The law is good. Let me demonstrate this. Kevin, I need you to come up here and help me. You can come right here, Kevin. Right here, stand and face the congregation, all right? Okay. All right, I got a question for you. Who hit you? You. Well, are you sure they didn't hit you? No. Okay, so who hit you? You. But wait a minute. Wasn't it the Bible that hit you? You're holding Because I didn't hit you. <laughs> No, it was, it was me that hit you, right? So, so the, it wasn't the Bible's fault, is what you're saying. It was me. Now, if I use the Bible as a weapon, it's not the Bible's fault. It's not the law's fault. Now, practically, we probably don't physically hit people with the Bible. So let me be more specific about how this lie plays out and how we conflate the perpetrator with the tool that the perpetrator uses. Kevin, you blaspheme God and you're going to burn in hell. Now, is this true? Is this what the law says? Technically, this is what the law says, absent of some other important things that are in the law. But is, is this the law speaking? No. Based on my antagonistic tone, this is me speaking to my brother Kevin. This is not the law. This is me using the law like a weapon instead of shining it like a light, like it's meant to be. And it's not the law's fault. Listen to the same basic truth, but delivered in a different way. In essence, a different message. Kevin, brother you and I are born into a rebellion. We're, we rebel and against a holy and a loving God. And by our lives and by our lips, we blaspheme him. And if something doesn't change, God will allow that 
to determine our eternity. We need a savior, Kevin. The, go- the gospel and the word of God shows us that. Same basic truth, but a totally separate message in essence. Separate messengers. The first message is hate and hopelessness delivered viciously by sin in the preacher, specifically a spirit of enmity for a provocation, as if the gospel, the good news, could be a provocation. The second message, though, is using the law to deliver a passionate warning, which is part of the gospel, speaking the truth in love, full of grace and truth. There's a difference there. Thank you, Kevin. You can be seated. Give him a hand. See, listen, sin is bad. The law is good. And sin doesn't just use the law for the evils of judgment or hatred, but all forms of destruction. Check out what he says in verse 8. Sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment. I love the Amplified Version says, seizing an opportunity to express itself. Sin produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Produced in me is really key here. It's like saying sin used the law to kind of spur on or inflame in me or awaken the evil that was already there in me. Because, you know, sin is, need your help here, bad, good, sin is bad. I noticed this with my kids. Oftentimes my kids do bad and sinful things just because they want to. But I have a suspicion that sometimes my kids just do things specifically because we tell them not to. They had no desire to not do whatever it is before the commandment came and they seized upon that opportunity. I'm convinced that my third child didn't start walking until 15 months old because she caught wind months before that we wanted her to walk. Now, I have no way to prove this, but I have a sneaky suspicion. Now, the point, though, is that sin seizes the opportunity of the command. Sin is the problem. Sin is the killer. Sin seeks to occupy the deepest place of your mind and your identity in order to kill you and choke out the waning piece of life that breathes in you by God's mercy. Sin is crouching down deep inside of all of us, just waiting for an opportunity to express itself, using whatever means necessary for carnage. I'll give you an example of this. I believe adultery dwells in the souls of men and women long before they're married. Long before the commandment comes to have and to hold at the altar. And after that, in those years or decades of test, the the commandment comes and sin awakens of sorts and says, well, you could have and hold forsaking all others, but what about some of those others? What about those alternatives? Forbidden fruit tastes so much sweeter, doesn't it? See, sin opportunes on the commandment, looking for the moment to kill. Adam and Eve's first sin, it wasn't eating the fruit. It happened before this. 
In the garden, God gives a first commandment, which is great. Go be fruitful and multiply. Awesome commandment. First prohibitive commandment is, hey, there's this one tree, though. You can eat anything else, but on the day you eat that, you will surely die. Now, this is the context for the first sin that happened in their minds and in the words of Satan. Satan comes up and says, you will not surely die, which is a partial truth. But a lie. He used the commandment to lie. And Adam and Eve, before they ate of the fruit, they sinned by questioning God, agreeing with this lie that came seizing upon the command, right? They were thinking things like, well, maybe we won't surely die. Maybe God is, is just uh, trying to hold us back, prohibiting us, restricting us. He doesn't want what's best for us. And please hear my heart. This is one of those moments when we go to God's word and you can see through the preciousness of your soul and the danger of sin that this story of the garden, it's not just an ancient myth. It's your battle for your soul in your life right now. Everyone in here is facing a choice today between trusting the protective power of God in a particular command over your life right now or believing somehow that he's limiting you through that commandment. His commandment brings an opportunity to trust him. The law brings an opportunity to to see with clearer eyes to trust something that we're responsible for, but it also spurs on an opportunity to dig deeper into mistrust, unbelief, sin. Now verse 8 goes on. This gets a little mysterious, so remember, the law is good, sin is bad. Verse 8, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. Verse 9, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. This gave me a headache this week, but turned out to be so rich. The law is good and sin is bad. When it says sin lies dead, it's saying that the recognition of sin is dead or inactive for a period of time. It's not saying that, you know, we don't sin before the law comes, but that our rebellion that's always been there in our nature and in our even youthful choices, our rebellion isn't as conscientious. We're more in the dark and less aware of it. And so when it says in verse 9, I was once alive apart from the law, it's apart from the awareness of the law. Okay, So when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. It's not that sin wasn't already alive. It's that the rebellion of sin became all the more explicit. He could no no longer go on sinning in ignorance. I, I think it was probably maybe in his adolescence when he must have first read the law. I don't know really in Paul's case, but I know in my case. What about you? When did you first become aware? You could no longer make excuses the same way. At age 14 for me, I was invited to a student-led Bible study, a campus ministry on campus. I went for some reason. I heard them preaching the Bible 
for the first time in my life, all of my misdiagnoses of my problems were laid bare, and I knew that I was not saved. In fact, I knew that I was dead, and yet I had a peace about me leaving there with nothing changing except for my awareness. I had a peace like there's something more here. And I came back the next week, and I met my Savior. Friends, it's hard to meet your Savior if the law doesn't show you that you're dead and that you need saving. So when Paul says here in verse 8, I died, or not, I died, he's saying, I was no longer oblivious to my spiritual death and my moral depravity that was there all along. I was guilty. I knew it. I was dead. I heard the fatal slam of the gavel. I could, I could see with open eyes the carnage before me. My nostrils were unplugged to the smell of the stench of the death of my sin. Because of the law. Let me give you a historical example of how this verse 9 plays out where accountability to something exposed turns into an opportunity for worse sin. The sin of slavery. It was horrible and disgusting long before Western abolitionists started speaking out with the fire and anointing of God's righteous law typically in the 19th century. Of course, the sin of slavery wasn't dead in that it wasn't happening before that because basically in all cultures and all time, this sin has been rampant. It was rampant in Africa long before the transatlantic slave trade in the 16th century. It was a sin all along before God and before his creation. But when the law was exposed in Western cultures that had access to the word of God. And the law exposed the sin to be sin and sinful beyond measure. As verse 13 says, the horror of sin was revealed and some Christians repented and have been repenting. Many others instead allowed the sin that was once relatively Dormant, or their awareness of it to awaken and fight back against God and against his law and against his image-bearing people that they were suppressing. At that point of exposure leading up to 1865 and beyond, the rebellion of the sin arose into a more murderous and explicit intent through the law. So the law is good and sin is bad. And uses the law for all sorts of rebellion and destruction. We're going to come back to verse 11, but let's go to verse 12 if you're following along in your Bible. So the law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. You see, the law is good, but it shows God's holiness. And this sort of goodness isn't always safe for sinners. It's like the reference to Aslan in uh, the the Christ type in the books, the Chronicles of Narnia. Susan is intrigued by this lion. Wait, he's a lion? She asks Mr. Beaver, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver says, safe? He isn't safe. Who said anything about safe? He's not safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Similarly, the, the law of King Jesus, it's not safe but it's holy. 
and it's good. Verse 13, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, because remember sin is bad, good. Sin producing death in me that was good through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. This shown to be is so important. Such helpful wording. It's like saying it's, it's revealed as sin. Exposed. Brought to light. Can you turn to your neighbor and say, don't blame the light. Now go with me for a second, kind of in your mind. Go to your cozy place. I don't know if it's your favorite chair Maybe wrapped up with your favorite blanket, maybe with a coffee. It's your cozy place. It's a dimly lit room that you're in. Maybe you're kind of reading a Kindle or watching Netflix or whatever that thing is that you do that, that doesn't become controlling sin, right? Because you're killing sin. But, but you're in a cozy place, right? All of a sudden, the door opens to that room and kind of light starts to break in. And through that door walks your, your roommate or your spouse or whoever you live with. And they turn on the light. And in that moment when the light goes on, you see in the corner a mouse scutter away. Roaches crawling up the raw wall. Let me ask you, how cozy is your cozy place right now? Let me tell you, the discomfort is not the light's fault. Don't blame the light. This is in essence what happened to me when I was 14 years old. As it relates to this passage, when the light of the law is turned on, sin kicks back and in essence awakens. It's no longer able to operate under the darkness of ignorance. And when it's exposed, it turns to another twin tactic. In essence, trying to bring the law, the, the darkness of ignorance into the light through another tactic. And that is, you want to know what that tactic is? Now you can go to verse 11. Ready? Verse 11, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, what's that word? Deceived, Deceived me. And through it, killed me. So when the law exposes sin, sin deceives and sin uses half-truths to deceive us and twist and pervert. Remember, you will not surely die. Well, half-true. I heard another preacher put it like this. Imagine you're, you're tired, you've been working hard, and, and sin speaks to you, whether it's a little voice, I don't know. But we, you know how this works in your life. Hey, you know, you, you've been working so hard and you're tired, you know. Your response would be, well, thank you, sin, or whatever. Thanks. Yeah, I have been working hard. Okay, uh, you know, you need to sleep. You need rest. Yeah, I do need some rest. I, need, I deserve this. Okay? Okay, well, you know, you need some help and a rest because to have a really good night's sleep, it'd be good to take a sleeping pill. Okay, I can take a sleeping pill. Hey, but you don't just need a good night's rest. You need, like, the best night's rest ever. You need, like, a hundred times one good night's rest. So take a hundred pills. This is in essence what sin does. And with 
awakened minds, we can see how foolish that is. But what about some of the other ways that sin deceives us? Hey, God will provide for you. But, but you, you need to help him. So uh, you should take this risk or that risk or do this thing that his word clearly tells you is foolishness. You should buy lottery tickets. Or you need companionship. True. I need companionship. Thank you, Jesus, for that. But, but you know, if you're not feeling like you're getting the kind of companionship you need, here, let me help you fast forward that, sin says. How about you just download this or that app? No, apps aren't sin. But the sin says, oh, well, that person, I'll probably find someone that's just trying to hook up. But, you know, I can change him. I can change him. <laughs> Sin deceives. Or you need to let loose and have some fun. Now, let me tell you, I was here the first two songs. This is true. Y'all need to let loose and have a little bit of fun. But if sin starts telling you this, then concludes, oh, well, you know, dancing at a frat rager is just the same as dancing anywhere else, right? Or, Or how about this? What he did to you was wrong. True. So in that moment where you were not in control, you need to never let that happen again. You can't trust. Someone tells you you got to forgive. That's because they want to control you. But you have to be in control. That's your comfort. God didn't protect you, so now you have to be your own protector. See, when the law exposes our real condition, sin fights back harder to deceive us, just to stir us from any direction besides the Savior. Anything but Jesus. We're skewed away from the simplicity of Jesus the Savior, Jesus the protector, Jesus the companion, Jesus the provision. Anything but Jesus is what sin tries to push us to. Now, the same word for deceived in verse 11 is used elsewhere. And look, it's only used like four or five times in the whole Bible. So check this out. Verse 3 of 2 Corinthians 11. Paul says, But I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Sin and Satan deceive us to complicate that which is bloody simple. To complicate and stir us to one of two directions. License or legalism. License or legalism or some combination of both. Now, here go my two takeaways that I've kind of adapted from the preaching of John Piper on this text. But direction one that... deception leads us to is license and license pushes us to hopeless self-indulgence. I'll I'll kind of share with you how that leads to hopelessness and then to self-indulgence. It's, it's like a voice that says in essence, well, God probably doesn't exist, but if he does, these commandments here are just impossible to live out. True. True. Now, if he does exist, He's just setting you up for failure because he hates you. He wants to keep you down. He doesn't want you to have power and liberty. There's no hope of pleasing him. So you just kind of need to become your own God in essence and just 
Reset the table. Soothe yourself with pleasure. And it's this false hopelessness, first of all, because the knowledge that we cannot fulfill the law is not the end of the story. It's not hopeless. But the false conclusion of self-indulgence says that you're going to gain power through this pleasure. And what happens every time? Powerlessness. I mean, we've all, we could think back to this deception in our last few weeks and cry about it personally. And, And when sin promises liberty, it just brings what? Bondage. So the deception is that when the law sheds light on our sin, we either rebel against it with license or we try to justify ourselves by it with legalism. Legalism pushes us to hopeful self-righteousness. Hopeful self-righteousness. So license is hopeless, but that's a lie because there's still hope. And legalism is, is a lie because the hopefulness is false hope through self-righteousness. And it sounds like this. Well, you see your sin. Now fix it. You can do it. Try harder. Hey, at least you're not as bad as that fool over there. So pull yourself up. Dust yourself off. Follow your heart. You can do this. See, given to legalism, we'll always find ways to justify ourselves by a part of the law or in comparison to others instead of being in comparison to the heart of the law and to the God that gives the law. We'll subconsciously suppress the parts of ourselves that are failing in the law and we'll really do good to expose where other people are failing that make ourselves look good. Legalism uses the law to create a new sort of law. Kind of redraw the lines of who's in And who's out to make myself feel like I have the upper hand? It's kind of like spiritual gerrymandering if you're into politics. If not, I'm going to move on here. (laughs) Legalism does this. It takes parts of the law. Remember that there's a command in the Old Testament. You shall not boil a child in its mother's milk. This has to do with the heart of the preciousness of human life. But for some reason, or of, of life itself, the preciousness of life. Goat life, human life. I think, it's a, I think it's a metaphor for human life. But it definitely not, has nothing to do with what's become kosher law. And having like all sorts of rules beyond not boiling a goat in its mother's milk. Thank you. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> or the command in the New Testament. Will you be with me again? Do not be drunk with wine or just drunk. Why? God wants you to be alert and active and ready to follow him and conquer the devil. And the adventure that he gives is better than any brawling whatever mess is an alternative. So do not be drunk with wine. Well, in the early 20th century, Christians got a little bit of foothold on culture. And so we said, well, let's take it another level here. Let's just prohibit all alcohol. And not just in churches, but for a whole decade of our country, the federal government was given this power by Christians to prohibit drinking at all or the sales of alcohol. It's the prohibition. Basically, Christians are responsible for creating the mafia. Legalism didn't work there. Or in the 50s and 60s, after decades of teenagers being able to drive and kind of do whatever, 
this uptick in promiscuity. So evangelical Christians were like, man, you know, dancing's bad. Let's prohibit dancing. That's where the Footloose movie comes from. Let me tell you, it turns out even evangelical kids can figure out how to be promiscuous without adult-sanctioned dancing. Legalism didn't work there. Or think about all the, the silly lies of the diet culture today. Don't eat this food and you'll be healthy. Eat this superfood and you will be righteous. None of it works. In fact, it's producing a mental disorder that's arisen in the last few decades called orthorexia. Basically, we think that we can gain our righteousness by the foods we eat or don't eat. And legalism doesn't work there either. Now, when someone by license draws this false comfort in outright rebellion, how is that different than when we, the legalistic, would draw false comfort in rules absent of faith? It's just a religious form of idolatry. And don't think that legalism is just a, you know, a right-winger thing either, because lefties do this too. Think about the law of political correctness. What if what is politically correct or woke today is subjectively judged by a future generation as hatred tomorrow? Be careful. This is a double-edged sword. Jesus says, for with the judgment you use, you will be judged. And the measure you used, it will be measured to you. So what if we measure grace to other people? What happens then? The law isn't sin, but the worship of the law is sin. Every bit as much as the self-certified license to reject the law is sin. And what do license and legalism have in common? They both make self the center. Whether self-indulgence or self-righteousness, they're both sin. Condemning others and self, whether it's by hedonism or outright hatred, they both reject the Savior. Hey, yeah, the law revealed your sin. You're a mess. You need Jesus. Well, let's try something else. They both do this. They, they both lead to damnation, separation from God because of blasphemy. The law is good, but it's not God. The law shows me I need God, but the law is a terrible replacement for God. Nothing like the law can expose my need for a Savior, but no one like the Savior can save. And how does Jesus save? How, how do we know that Jesus is authorized to save us? Because of how he performed the law. See, through the law... We are awoken to rebellion. But through the law, Jesus awakens to redemption. And he shows us that he has the power to be the all-sufficient, perfect sacrifice. So what can you do to justify yourself? Nothing. But what can you do to remember the one who justified you and who promises life and power and growth and overwhelming grace to 
conquer sin and deception. What can you do to remember that? He said, do this in remembrance of me. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the Passover bread and he lifted it up.